When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, we had a pretty cool opportunity come up to us a few few weeks ago. Yes, we did. We talked to Dr. Rebecca Beaton, who is a psychologist and also the founder and director of the Anxiety and Stress Management Institute. Yes. Frankly surprising she didn't take both of us away I for know. anxiety and stress <laughs> management help. Take us to rehab. <laughs> but actually, uh, if you are a fan of TLC, you've probably seen Dr. Beaton on the show Hoarding, Buried Alive. Yeah, hoarding has been getting a lot of attention lately on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of come out of nowhere, highlighting this disorder that's actually been around and recognized in the clinical community for a long time. But I don't know about you, Molly, but it's only been in... P- maybe the past year or two that I've really known about hoarding. Yeah, it's, it's been everywhere in the last year or two. And and that's why it was so great to talk to Dr. Beaton is because she, I think, cleared up a lot of misconceptions, uh, sort of more defined this condition of hoarding for us. So we're going to play a lot of our conversation with her today. But before we get started, shall I just give you a brief overview of hoarding? Yes, please. In case you've been living in a house that's full of belongings and you can't find... A radio or I'm, a newspaper? I'm a little concerned. I don't have a closet in my room, so sometimes I feel like a hoarder, even if I'm not hoarding, just because my things are always out. I'm going to be honest with you. I think even if you're not a hoarder, listening to Dr. Beaton is going to make you question yourself. Yeah, you're going to want to go clean out your sock drawer or something. You gotta, you're got you going to have to get rid of something. Hoarding is an excessive collection of items, along with the inability to discard them. That sentence is from uh, the Mayo Clinic. And what happens, what really distinguishes hoarding from something else, as Dr. Beaton's going to get into, is just how it affects your living conditions. Right. They're going to get so cramped that everything's filled to capacity, but people who are living there don't see it as a problem. It's often the people around the hoarder who finally, you know, it's the breaking point where they're like, you've got to do something about this. Right. And one thing that I didn't know about hoarding before we talked to Dr. Beaton was that it's actually um, right now considered a subset of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. But that's actually about to change, as Dr. Beaton's going to tell us about. And hoarding is going to be classified as its own specific disorder. So here's Dr. Beaton telling us a little bit more about hoarding and its connection to OCD. In terms of the connection with um, OCD, typically it's considered right now a subtype of OCD. 
and um, or it's also considered one of the eight criteria for obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is slightly different than just straight OCD. Um, and however, they are slating to put the the new diagnostical statistical manual of mental disorders into effect in 2012, and they've slated hoarding disorder to be its own disorder among the anxiety disorders in the new DSM. And um, and primarily because they've realized that there's different neurobiology with hoarding than OCD. And also the treatment protocol that you would use to treat OCD doesn't quite work with hoarding disorder. And so they've realized that it is really very unique and it should not just be classified as a subtype. Now, I have to say, Kristen, when we first started thinking about talking about hoarding, uh, my mind immediately went to my father, who collects a lot of political memorabilia, mm-hmm. sometimes to the point of obsession. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's it's really cool stuff. And I think that often probably my long-suffering mother has been like, is this collecting or is this hoarding? Right, because so many people have all kinds of collections. I know I had a stamp collection as a child, yes. Molly. Um, my mother, I probably shouldn't share this, but embarrassing fact, she had a Beanie Baby collection. I think everyone has something, yeah. you know, and, and it's very easy to, um, I, I've told this story, I think, to you before, Kristen, but one time I made a pair of frog pajamas uh-huh. in a sewing class. Yes, you brought this up in our home ec podcast. And now everyone gives me frog stuff just out the wazoo. So now you're the girl collecting frogs, even though you didn't even mean to start. I didn't even mean to frogs. start this collection. So how do I distinguish a, a shelf for, full of frog gifts mm-hmm. from, you know, something more sinister like hoarding? And that is the question we posed to Dr. Beaton. Where the real problem comes in is if it caused impairment in their functioning. So if it's causing the living space to be so crowded that they can't move around very well or access things that they need, like the stove or the refrigerator or if it's blocking like heat ducts or exits. So it really comes down to how much space it's taking up versus what it is. So when you watch the show Hoarding Buried Alive on TLC and you see the extent to which hoarding has clearly um, created some kind of functional impairment in these people's lives. I mean, there, there's just stuff they can't even get through their houses. They can barely sleep in their own beds because there is just stuff everywhere. The big question for me, Molly, was where does this hoarding behavior come from? It seems so abnormal in a way because, you know, you you can see the evidence of this, this functional impairment right in front of you. So the question we wanted to ask Dr. Beaton was, what are the psychological roots of this kind of obsessive compulsive behavior? I find that almost all hoarders are trying to protect themselves. So no matter what their reason for collecting is, underneath it all is a way of putting up a wall to keep them safe from people. Um, There's certainly a, a biological predisposition to it, we've determined, and it's hereditary you know, there's some statistics that say up to 85% of first degree relatives uh, or a person with hoarding disorder will have a first degree relative that also has hoarding disorder. So they've got that predisposition. However, um, it, you know, and it also starts in early childhood and adolescence. So if, um, 
you start to see the pattern coming about in early adolescence typically, and they start hoarding somewhat. And then as life goes on and we all go through trials and tribulations and personal um, losses, and those losses seem to really affect them more and more where they start walling off and um, they're really protecting themselves from being hurt by people. And that's a great way to do so. You don't invite people into your home because you don't want them to see it. And um, they are worried that people are going to judge them, so they just don't allow themselves to get close to other people. So that's a component I think that's important to, to realize is that there's definitely a, a, a social aspect there of their they're wanting to protect themselves. And um, I think that gets missed at times. Clearly, it takes a lot of time, though, to amass an enormous collection I mean, it took me years to uh, create the perfect stamp collection, Molly. I'm really excited to see the stamp collection. <laughs> I was not aware it existed. <laughs> well, I kind of had had a jump start. It was a, it was a collection started by my father that was then handed down to me. Uh-huh. So I didn't have to start from scratch. But it, with as with any collection, it takes a long time to accumulate all of these things. So a lot of times by the time hoarding really gets out of hand. You're an adult, you know, you're middle aged. You've had years and you probably have the apartment or the house and the disposable income and the disposable income to create these enormous collections of things. But one thing that Dr. Beaton points out is that this behavior, whether you can notice it or not, generally begins in adolescence. I I have an adolescent right now that um, it's actually a family I'm working with and I, um, and the uh, the adolescent has started to watch uh, Hoarding Buried Alive and realized, oh, my gosh, I have this. And he realized it before his mother even realized it because he's he's holding on to all these items from childhood because it reminds him of, of happy times. And he does not want to let go of his G.I. Joes and his <laughs> all these various things. So um, that's really you can start to see where they they're having anxiety around parting with items that it's really important they keep everything um and and you know for him he's catching it early and so he's got a charity that he really likes and he is donating to the charity and he's trying to you know we're trying to help him reframe you know isn't it great to have some other um you know kid out there that can enjoy these items that that you're just letting sit on a shelf at this point so i mean that's primary work primarily where it shows up is, is toys and memories or, you know, but it can be different things too. I mean, it can still be like their trash or, um, you know, a, a collection of some kind. It, it just depends, but it, that is where it shows up. Typically there's some sense of being, you know, wanting to keep things and collect things in adolescence, even early childhood, it can show up, but it doesn't, a lot of times it goes under the radar until, they are older. It's, and if you have, if you've noticed with the show, they are often in their mid fifties. And so if you think about mid fifties, that's about the time when you lose a parent and, um, or have lost a parent, maybe, you know, within the last decade and over the last decade, the hoarding gets worse. So they end up on the show about mid fifties. So it can go under the radar for a long time. Plus it takes a while. It depends on how much money a person has, but it takes a while to fill up a house. You know, you also find with them that they have like some kind of inheritance 
um, you know, that they, that, you know, one person I worked with on the show, she had had a $200,000 inheritance and she blew through it in a couple of years. And that's how she built up her house. Um, so if that's why it shows up later on, is it takes time to have enough money to collect these things. Or, I mean, you know, it doesn't always have to be the items they purchased. It could be things that, you know, you've seen dumpster divers and that kind of thing. Um, but it, it often does show up in adolescence. So we know some of the psychological roots of it. We know when it starts. We can, we've started to learn from talking to Dr. Beaton some of the characteristics of this condition. But the thing I had to know was just, you know, why is this going on? Why, you know, if, if you're, if you can't walk around your house, why do you keep doing it? And so that's what we asked Dr. Beaton. The thing about, um, hoarding disorder is that they are reinforced for both collecting and avoiding. And so they get a high off of collecting. I mean, that's why it's very much like an addiction. And, um, and so they, they get a rush from collecting or looking at the items that they collected. I mean, one I worked with kept the price tags on everything that she collected because she got a great deal. So if she'd want to look at them and say, look at how much I paid for that. I hardly paid anything. That's awesome. <laughs> and so, you know, they get, they get a high off of it. So that they're reinforced for that. And then they also get reinforced for avoiding because if, it causes more anxiety to actually conquer the fear. And so if they just avoid it, then they, they keep the, the, the anxiety at bay. And maybe if they go out shopping again for something or collecting, however they're doing it, they're collecting, then that will keep the anxiety at bay. Um, and it's with OCD, typically they're in the moment, they're having more distress over it. They're realizing, you know, this, this is not good that I'm doing this. Whereas the hoarder, when they're out shopping, they are enjoying every minute of it, which is why it's more like an addiction in that way than it is typical OCD behavior. Now, this is stuff mom never told you. And we can't, we can't do a subject without throwing a little, little gender fun in there. You're probably wondering why it took so long to get to this, but we had to know differences between male and female porters. And I bet you what Dr. Beaton's about to say might surprise some of you. So take a listen. Well, actually, men are twice as likely to get hoarding disorder than women are, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and, um, so it's, it's primarily men. However, certainly there are plenty of women and, and women tend to come forward more often for treatment than men do just in general. Uh, they're more likely to seek help. Uh, however, so in terms of differences, the, it's basically in what their interests are, what they want to collect. You see more men collecting tools and, items that they can use to, um, to fix things or, you know, scrap metal, things like that. Um, but it, but that, I mean, certainly I'm sure there's a woman out there that's interested in that as well in terms of, um, you know, do they collect different things? Again, it's just the interest or how they collect it, I guess is the real question. There really isn't any difference. They, it, everyone has their different reasons for collecting. So it might be security where they're trying to make sure that they have something on hand that they might need in the future, or it could be, um, attachment to a loved one that's maybe somebody who has passed and they are wanting to still remain connected to them or a memory. So in terms of, 
at that it might be sentimentality or it could be that they don't want to fill up a, a landfill or contribute to uh, pollution in any way. So they take this responsibility of trying to collect items and recycle them in just the right way. And then they have difficulty actually following through with that. And that's one of the hallmarks, too, is the difficulty following through with their intentions. They've got these great intentions that they're going to use this to create that or that they amass all this certain amount of information that they may need in the future that they can put it in, in some kind of um, orderly fashion that they can access it. But the ability to actually follow through with that is difficult for them, typically. So we know that men and women tend to hoard Differently, They have different kinds of pathologies when it comes to hoarding. But Molly and I also wanted to know if Dr. Beaton could walk in and see the type of thing that someone is hoarding. Say if they... When she walks in and sees my frog shelf. Right. When she walks in and sees your frog shelf or if she walks into someone's house and sees like rows and rows and rows of, oh, I don't know, like life magazines. Or takeout know, containers. Takeout containers. Yeah. What what can you tell about someone based on what he or she hoards? Does Do those items have some clues into the disorder? At first thought, you might think you could tell something about the collection. Like, for example, if you come in and you see a bunch of unused or used to go boxes that haven't been thrown away or a bunch of trash, you might think, oh, you know, they have difficulty with, you know, parting with anything and they don't want to, you know, so a lot of them really want to recycle or they want to make sure that the items are going to the right place. They might think that they could be used someplace else or newspaper. And you might think that the reason is because they are not wanting to, um, you know, create a greater carbon footprint or something like that. However, it might actually be that those newspapers that they've amassed are ones that came in prior to 1982 when their mother died. And so it was, it's actually sentimentality. So the biggest thing is not making an assumption when you see the items that this is why they're there. You have to talk to them and find out. So tell me the significance of these items. What's going on here? So at the beginning of the podcast, we noted that the the main difference between hoarding and collecting is a functional impairment. And then the thing that really drives this hoarding behavior is the psychological reward that someone gets from going out and finding the item that they want and then getting it into their possession. And it really sets up an addictive pattern in their in their brain, not unlike a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction. So when we were talking to Dr. Beaton about how you treat this hoarding behavior, especially when it gets to the extreme point that you see on hoarding buried alive on TLC, you really do have to and approach it. You, you really do have to approach the treatment like someone who say has been an alcoholic for, for years and years, but it actually reaches the point where some people will bottom out and realize the extent of the impairment that they're living with, or that's the point when the family members step in and say, hey, you you can't live like this anymore. So we asked Dr. Beaton to talk with us a little bit about how hoarding does work like an addiction and how someone can come out of that. I think that they do bottom out and they realize, you know, I can't get to my refrigerator anymore and my health is suffering because I'm not eating well. But that's ideal if they realize it. 
most of the time it has to do with their family or loved ones around them that are, they can't take it anymore. Ones they live with, or they're so concerned and that they cut off their relationship with them or just say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stay married to you any longer. That usually is their bottom out. But if you think about addictions, that's usually their bottom out too, is when the people around them stop enabling them. So that's often when you find them come into treatment. So if, if this is like an addiction, you've got to ask the question, how do you overcome this addiction? Is it different than overcoming a drug addiction? And, you know, I think that hoarding has been on TV quite a bit now that you may not even know how to do it without being on television. So that's the question. How does someone overcome a hoarding addiction? And what was really cool about this is Dr. Beaton used a specific example of someone she's worked with to really illustrate it for us. So take a listen to this. Um, one person I work with uh, for TLC was a professional skateboarder. He had been sober for 22 years um, from alcohol and drugs. And he, we, the way I framed it with him was as an addiction so that he could treat this addiction, the hoarding addiction, just as he did the other because he was so successful in that. And, um, and a big component was he definitely was afraid of being hurt again. He'd been hurt several times and it was the, the hoarding really started getting worse after his divorce and primarily after the loss of his mother. So in particular for, um, him, what we needed to do was not only look at it as an, as an addiction. So one day at a time was critical and trying to, be able to figure out those triggers when he wanted to, to use, so to speak. And for him, it was getting online and purchasing skateboard parts on, online. And so he would get off work in the evening. He, he worked like a swing shift. He'd get off work and want to get online and start buying, you know, skateboard wheels and trucks and all these different things. I never even knew what they were, but I learned. <laughs> and, um, he, um, and so, what we had to do is, first of all, do, we're, you know, like just you would, with an addiction one day at a time. And then we, he worked the program of trying to start organizing and cleaning out things just like he did. Um, he, well, just like he did with his addiction. And so, um, in addition to that was relying on people and asking for help because as I mentioned earlier, it comes back to really what we call as psychologists an attachment disorder. They are attached to belongings rather than people because people have hurt them in one way or another. There was some kind of traumatic event and people have hurt them. So they've, they end up with sort of a, a phobic, a phobia of becoming close to individuals. So filling up the space and the time with belongings creates a distance from others. And so bottom line is what they, the healthiest thing they can do to fill up the void is actually, actually reach out for the support of, of individuals of some, even if it's just one person and it might be the therapist, it might be the organizer, somebody who they can have a healthy attachment with is the best thing that they can do to actually heal the original wound. But just like any addiction, Dr. Beaton stressed the fact that it's critical to treat recovery from hoarding as a step-by-step process. It's not an overnight switch. You can't just walk in to someone's house. I can just walk in, burn all of my mother's beanie babies, 
and tell her to have a nice day and feel pat myself on the back for you know, ridding her of that of that burden. No, that's only going to perpetuate the cycle. So, Dr. Beaton... And cause a real rift in your relationship. <laughs> and it would, yes. Um, so, Dr. Beaton uh, went over that, that the time factor that's involved with overcoming hoarding behavior. So, it's really critical to always let the person make the decision about their belongings, that you never want to take something away from somebody and say, this has got to go. Because first of all, that's going to, you're going to lose trust and the person's not going to want to let you help them anymore. They're going to feel violated and re-traumatized from whatever their loss was originally. And, um, so helping them, you know, kind of process through it, because obviously if they do have some processing issues, then they need some help learning how to process. That's one of the key things is I want to teach them how to do it. I don't want to do it for them. And so, you know, helping them sort through how often do you use this? Do you think you'll actually be able to, um, to do this intended project with this item that you want to do? You know, what's the evidence that you've actually done these, these things before? Have you, have you actually followed through with them? When was the last time you did, did follow through with it? You know, so you kind of help them learn to process it. Like it depends upon the hoarder, but you give them like a set of questions they can ask themselves when they're looking at an, at an item so that they can kind of see, um, you know, is this something I really need? Even if, the, if it's a memory um, issue, like, you know, when I worked with Judy, um, the, the, that was for season one and, um, she had, a lot of items that were from her um, boyfriend who died in her house right in front of her. And there were like old flowers he had given her, you know, a dozen roses. What we did was we took pictures of things. So that way she could keep pictures and she didn't have to keep the actual item because it was something that was important to her. So there's different ways to be creative about being able to keep the memory without having to keep the item. Ideally, you want them to be able to keep it in their mind and know that it's always there if they want to access it. But especially in the beginning, they're not sure that they can actually do that. And, you know, I, I think, again, uh, when when you see hoarding on television so much on shows like Hoarding Buried Alive, you do think that it's something that can be wrapped up in 30 minutes or an hour. And so it's important to remember that, you know, it is a time consuming process. It's not an overnight thing. Uh, but but, you know, why are there so many shows about this right now? Like. Why do we think this is something that's going to be wrapped up in 30 minutes or an hour? And why do we want to watch this try to be wrapped up? And, and so we asked just, we asked Dr. Beaton, you know, how this, um, new obsession with hoarding has come about. And here's what she had to say. I think it's primarily the media and that now that it's out and people are learning about it, all of a sudden people are realizing this is what is going on with Uncle Harry oh. or <laughs> mom or whoever it may be. And, um, and so that's why it's gotten such attention. Now, on the one hand, I could see uh, a lot of positives with highlighting hoarding behavior on television. Dr. Beaton was saying that, you know, since people are seeing it on TV, they're starting to recognize patterns within themselves or perhaps within a loved one. But on the flip side of that, 
with all of this media exposure, we wanted to know what kind of misconceptions about hoarding and specifically recovery from hoarding might have arisen as a result of it being portrayed on television and being covered so much now in the media. And so this is what Dr. Beaton had to say about that. Uh, one thing I love about working with TLC is they've been really phenomenal about uh, the individual and taking care of them and whatever's best for them versus what's going to be great for TV. And so they've gone really slowly with the client. Cause I think that's one of the misconceptions is that you can go in and clean up a house in a couple of days and the person can start over and everything will be fine. And what, um, what you find is that people will end up being traumatized by that. It's like another loss for them. And, is the idea of being able to slow it down and realize this is really a marathon, not a sprint. It's going to be a lifelong journey, just like an addiction where you have to take one day at a time. You have to, you're going to have backslides and you have to keep going forward. And that it's really something that they need to work with their entire lives typically because they're going to have a propensity to want to collect again and they're going to want to keep things and not throw them away. So anyhow, um, I think the primary misconception is that you can go in and just clean up a house and the person's going to be okay and it's it's all over and, and they'll live their lives happily ever after. That's just not the way it works. It's really, really slow. And I really appreciate TLC, the way they've taken time with clients. If they want to bring somebody in to do like a big clean out, it's typically just, you know, it's over a period of a couple months for starters. It's not a weekend. Now, again, the way we came into contact with Dr. Beaton is because, you know, we work for Discovery Communications and uh, we have this association with TLC and the show Hoarding Buried Alive. But what's really cool, if we may toot our own sister channels horn for a little bit, is that Dr. Beaton claims that TLC is so thorough with follow-up therapy and care for the people who have been profiled on the show, which I think is is really amazing because you do have to wonder on any reality show what happens after the cameras stop rolling and uh, I re- she really appreciated the fact that she gets to work with these people for, for you know, a lot of time. You know, it's not like she sees them for one show and they're gone. And so as a result, there are some really cool success stories. And she's going to share one with us right now. I loved working with Benny out in, in Oakland. Um, he, I mean, his house was the worst I've ever seen. And he's got it about halfway cleared out. And to me, that's huge. Um, and the biggest thing I love about, I mean, I love all, I really, really care about all the, the hoarders I've worked with, but the, where I see Benny's made a, a great success is that he, he has not acquired. He stopped acquiring since we started working with him. Actually, the month before we actually showed up to film, he, he started really working on not acquiring. He decided I got to start now. And so he's only bought one hat in the last like six months. <laughs> And he actually, he's, you know, he's actually put himself in the situation, in the high risk situation, if you will, like we talk about with addicts where he actually goes into the discount stores or the flea markets and he puts himself in the situation, kind of plays around with things. He loves clothing. And, um, that's again where you can't stereotype who collects what because he collects more clothing than I've seen any woman ever click. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he'll play around with things and try them on. And he, he, he forces himself to say, that's all very nice. And I'm walking out now. And so I think that's a huge success. 
and he continues to chip away at it. It's just going to take some time because that house is full. And, you know, he, he's really made an excellent effort. And I, I, I feel really positive about where he's going. So clearly as people are watching the show, they might be recognizing some hoarding patterns, like we said, in their lives or a loved one's life. And perhaps, you know, Molly, listeners out, out there right now might be listening to what Dr. Beaton has to say and might be thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe I know someone that's going on. So to close things out, we wanted to get some final advice from Dr. Beaton on what the first steps on what someone should do if they think that they're exhibiting hoarding behavior or if they see that kind of behavior in someone else. Because Dr. Beaton's ultimate goal for participating with Hoarding Buried Alive on TLC is to provide an educational outlet, an educational resource for people out there to help more people recover from hoarding behavior. So from Dr. Beaton, here's what you should do. Here's your takeaway message about um, what to do if you think that you might be struggling with hoarding behavior. If you find a family member is exhibiting hoarding, that it's really critical to be, or family member or a friend that's exhibiting hoarding, and you want to work with them, or you, you know, people ask me all the time, what should I do? First thing is be patient. Um, and then don't take the person's behavior personally. This is about them. It's not about the fact that they don't care about you enough, that they are cluttering up the kitchen so much that you can't get to the food. <laughs> it's, it's not a personal thing. And, um, also to build trust with them. So you, like I said earlier, you never want to take something away from somebody without their permission. You want them to make the decision to actually put it in the recycle bin. Um, and then you don't want to argue with them. Otherwise, if you start arguing with them, they'll just dig their heels in deeper. You want to, um, as I, I said earlier too, you want to provide reflection. So is this item really, does it fit into your long-term goals? We always want to find out what their goals are. So if their goals are, you know, to be black, to actually have a bedroom that they can go in and actually sleep in, then if they want to keep, you know, 50,000 sweaters, <laughs> is this going to be, interfere with your goal to have all these sweaters? And um, so you're trying to keep them focused on the goal, bring them back to that and um, provide reflection to them, gently pointing out that this current course of action is not consistent with your overall goal. And, um, and also encourage the person to get help from a qualified professional. So often people want to try to take it into their own hands and get the family to just come in and clean everything out. And you definitely, it's, it's worth at least making a consultation with a professional. What's the best way to go about it? Sometimes they also need an intervention, just like with an addiction where the family needs to sit around and, and go through the reasons why they're concerned because often they don't have a lot of insight about it and they don't realize how bad it's become. It, it's such a gradual disorder for the most part that they don't realize that this is really impairing their functioning and also to be prepared for relapses that they are going to start collecting again at some point. It, it's just part, that's part of addiction treatment too, is relapse is part of the treatment. It's part of the course of, of treatment. You just keep going one step, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, as long as you're continue to go forward. 
So that was our conversation with Dr. Beaton. Again, she's on Hoarding Buried Alive, which is on TLC, and we hope it was helpful. We hope that uh, if you don't want to clean out your closet right now, which I did after talking to her, you at least uh, took something away from it. We'd love to hear from you guys about um, hoarding behaviors you've exhibited, that you've seen other people exhibit. Uh, you know, what role does hoarding play on play in your life? All of that. We want to know. We, ho- we hoard your emails, Ooh. if you will. Nice, Molly. But not in an unhealthy way. Well, here is one of those emails, Molly, that we are speaking of. And this is in response to our episode on why girls just love horses. And this is from Becky. She writes, I was never a horse girl. I've always been an animal lover, but I was never particularly drawn to horses or their environment. But I recently came up with a theory that girls tend to fall into one of two categories. Horse girls or dolphin girls. I was a dolphin girl. My dream as a 10-year-old was to be the first person to learn the entire dolphin language. I wanted to bridge the two worlds of the sea and the land and create a harmony and a new understanding between people and sea mammals. I also felt that because of dolphin's intelligence, I might be able to form a meaningful relationship with a dolphin and maybe even find a dolphin who would be my BFF. It seems to me that in some ways my attraction to dolphins was probably similar to some girls' attraction to horses. I wanted to ride dolphins through the open ocean and get that sense of speed and freedom that comes from a creature that is naturally so much faster and freer than myself. Maybe it's just a question of environments. Good question, Becky. There's something to that. Yeah. I mean, what else is on Lisa Frank Trapper Keepers? Unicorns and dolphins. That's so true. So true. So again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Molly, do you have another one? No? Okay, I thought that you were prepping. You held one up. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can head over to Facebook and like us over there. Follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And check out our blog during the week as well. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you can find it at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.